This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Joe LaBarbera. Joe's career spans half a century and both coasts, and includes stints with Bill Evans, Woody Herman, John Schofield, Tony Bennett, and many more. His new book, Times Remembered, chronicles his experience playing in the Bill Evans trio during the last two years of Evans' life. He also spent 28 years on the jazz faculty at Cal Arts, a position from which he recently retired. All right, Nashville, it's your turn. Ain't Too Proud is coming to town. I'll be there the week of March 20th, performing at Andrew Jackson Hall. You can get tickets and more info at ain'ttooproudmusical.com. And if you're planning on coming, please hit me up on Instagram or text me. Plenty of you have my number. I'd love to link up and say hi. Our Patreon content now features our recent guest, Pat Petrillo, discussing the recording of his version of Black Cow for his new record. We've also got lots of other drummers on that Patreon series, including Ash Sohn and Will Kennedy, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. So Joe has had a monster of a career, both as a performer and an educator. He's played with everyone. He's mentored many drummers at Cal Arts, including some you've definitely heard of. And it was great to talk with this elder statesman of jazz drumming. So let's get to it with Joe LaBarbera. So what uh, inspired you to write this book about Bill Evans? You know, it, it was something that had been on my mind for a long time, Zach. <clears throat> I started to just write things down about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Because these, these memories were pretty clear and I wanted to keep them, you know. And I mean, it was it was therapeutic as well as uh, something that uh, that I just thought I should do. Uh, the inspiration for the book really was uh, I think I just wanted to get all of this out there. I wanted to say it out loud so I could let a lot of it go. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. So that's pretty much the reason why. Yeah, I've I've heard that about. um the, the process of writing a book is that it's, it's not only getting a story out there that people should hear, but, but it's, uh, you know, processing, you know, the story for yourself and kind of digging through these memories and, um, you know, having, having new perspective on, on whatever it is you're writing about. And I have to say that it actually, it was kind of like, uh, once it was published and out on the streets, the, I felt a, a kind of like a, uh, almost like a weight off my shoulders. Hmm. Interesting. And so you, you spent like two years with the Bill Evans trio. It was, it was the, basically the last two years of Bill Evans life, correct? That is right. Yeah. And you know, plenty has been written about, uh, Bill Evans and about, um, you know, the various trios that he led. Um, did you feel that there was, uh, wrong information out there about him or about the music or just missing information that you could shed light on? I think missing. There were a few in inaccuracies here and there, but overall, I think people got the story pretty well 
uh, straight. Um, I, I know, for example, that uh, Peter Pettinger's book, which I thought was very good, he he had some misstatements uh, about the last uh, period in Bill's life. But the fact is, he never really reached out to me. In fact, no one has ever reached out to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that's neither here nor there. But uh, the book that, that Charles and I wanted to write w- was going to address or it was going to be my my personal insider's view of my experience with Bill Evans and the way I perceived Bill as a person and also the way the music was evolving with the trio with Mark Johnson and myself. Right. So I was I was going to ask, like when you joined Bill, um, where where was he sort of personally and musically in, in the arc of his life? He seemed to be in a good place. Um he looked healthier than I, you know, I'd ever seen him, quite frankly. Although that may have been a misconception, but uh, he seemed more robust physically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just at the onset of his breakup of of the breakup of his marriage, mm. so that was not a highlight, obviously, in his life. But uh, in terms of him personally, he seemed okay at the time. But uh, he had separated from Nanette and was living in an apartment in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So that was happening at the same time as the trio was coming together. And uh, I think maybe the, the energy of the, of the new trio was, was keeping him uh, buoyed up a, right. a, a bit more than, uh, or, or it was keeping him buoyed up, let's just put it that way. Right. And like from a musical perspective, um, was, was the, the trio that you were part of, um, was, was he trying to go in a different direction than he had, than he had before, or sort of more, more of the same continuing the, the Bill Evans that everybody knew and loved? Well, let's see that there's a misconception right there, Zach, because Bill never wanted to, to recreate anything. He was, Mm -hmm. he was more open to new ideas and, and new styles than almost anybody I, I ever met. You know, he never wanted a recreation of the last band, just like miles never wanted a recreation of his last band or any, or train or any of the, any of the greats. He simply wanted you to show up prepared. You know, you have to do some homework. You have to understand, the nature of of how that trio functions, you know, the three-way dialogue and you, you know, you're given a lot of freedom, but you also have to have a lot of respect for the proceedings. And so you have to approach it from, from that perspective. But he, he enjoyed playing with Percy Heath, I think as much as he enjoyed playing with Scott LaFaro, you know, he was very open-minded about, about, um, you know, his side. His first trio was Kenny Dennis and Jimmy Garrison. You know, that's Hmm. actually the first trio. So it was never about that. It's just he would take what was happening and try to maximize it. So when when Mark joined, he felt a renewed energy. And he had Philly Joe Jones on drums. And then when when Philly left and I joined and then I brought a different energy. And I think that was that may have been the the missing piece. I think it was the missing piece. Yeah, frankly. So, yeah. Um, can you sort of, uh, what, what in your mind are the, um, the commonalities as well as the differences between the trio that you played in and, um, I guess the, you know, the, the other famous trio is like you mentioned with Scott LaFaro and, and Paul Motion, um, you know, that live at the village Vanguard era from the sixties, like what, um, what what did those two trios have in common, and and how were they different? Uh, I think the only thing they had in common was a uh, a willingness willingness to really be to go wherever it was going to go, you know. Mm-hmm. And nobody sets out trying to break new ground. I don't think that's ever the case. No one's ever trying to 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 mine something new and different. What they're what you're doing is simply letting the music take you somewhere based on the participants. Right. And yeah. then, and see what, see what happens. I'm sure you've, you've bought records that, uh, that had like all-star lineups. Right. And you thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. And it kind of falls flat because everybody's doing what they think 
people expect them to do. Whereas if you just show up and, and, and play to the best of your ability for, for the music that's in front of you, you know, you've heard this, this, it's almost a cliche, but it's really a good cliche and that's serve the music, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jazz players are saying that all the time. Well, if you do that, I think you're going to get the best result. So in terms of a comparison of that first trio and, and the trio with Mark and my, and myself, I think it was simply that willingness to really be engaged. And I think all Bill's trios were like that. It's just a, a combination of personalities and, and the way they click. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how was Bill, like especially at this at this point in his life, how was he personally? Because I, I think he's often perceived as um, a, a very an intense person, a serious person. Um, you know, sometimes a dark person. Um, but I think, you know, part of your, part of your motivation in writing this book is to, to shed some light on the aspects of his personality that not everybody got to see. Oh, he was a blast, man. I, I, loved, <laughs> I, I loved hanging out with him. Uh, I spent a lot of time in his, at his apartment with him, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, he could talk on a, on a variety of, of subjects. He was, you know, he liked, loved listening to talk radio. <laughs> he, he loved going to the horse track. You know, he was he was as good at horse racing as he was a jazz piano. I mean, really? Oh yeah, man. Because wow. he approached he approached it the same way. I talk about it in the book. He basically would learn as much as he could about it, and then make an informed decision. It was never you know just taking a roll of the dice. He would know all the specifics about a, about a particular race track, about the horses that were running, about the jockeys, about the conditions, all of the above. And he would come away a winner most times. So <laughs> that's, that's the kind of guy he was. You know, we had both been in the army. We both achieved the same rank in different times. He was in during Korea. I was in during Vietnam. Wow. Neither one of us went overseas. Fortunately, mm -hmm. but you know we had a shared uh, kind of a shared um, com a common background there. We'd both been Boy Scouts, both learned music in the home. We'd listened to a lot of the same records, even though we were a generation apart. So there were a lot of things that uh, that we had in common. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the time you uh, started playing with him. Um, you were you were well established in your own right uh, and and had a, a good resume going. Um, how did playing in that trio stretch you or challenge you? It offered me the most freedom I'd ever had in a band. That's how it mm. challenged me. You know, wow. um, the the perception of Bill Evans' trio is this uh, you know very uh, I don't I won't say delicate, but let's just say. Um, um, measured dynamics. Uh, once again, this points to to Bill's ability to just accept what's happening. You know, I could I could play as forcefully as I wanted, you mm -hmm. know, but he, he understood right away that I wasn't going to overdo it. You know, I would yeah. I would bring it in when I when I felt it was needed, and then I back off on it when it when it wasn't. I got as much pleasure out of out of playing a. a quiet symbol role on a ballad as I did out of blasting my brains out on an artist, you know? Right. right. So that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. And that was the challenge of it. I was, I was required to draw on every bit of resource that I had to make mm -hmm. that, to make that music. Yeah. Um, it's interesting about, um, trios. I was talking to, um, George Flutus recently about uh, him playing in the Ray Brown trio, and he was he he mentioned how uh, like Ray relied on him and relied on drummers in general to really dictate the energy of the music, whether it was going up or down. Um, and I wonder if if you had kind of the same relationship or the same agreement with with Bill because. The, you know, the perception is that like the leader of the trio is is sort of like, you know, the person whose name is on the trio is calling the shots. And, and that's true in many ways. But in terms of like the arc of the musical energy, um, you know, the, the drums are where it's at. Yeah, I mean, it was never spoken, Zach. But the fact is, I mean, the drums, of course, 
have the the widest dynamic range, right? So, mm-hmm. and in terms of injecting energy into the music, the potential's there, but Bill could be as forceful in his own way, you know? I listened yeah. to some of the, uh, some of the, um, his, his opening statements on Nardis, which is basically he's just playing the tune, he's improvising on it, but uh, his opening um, moments on that tune would in, it completely start to boil over, man. I mean, he could really crank it up when he wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, the drums are the most obvious thing you're gonna you're gonna pick up on in terms of of infusing energy into the music. Certainly. Yeah, I, you know, listening to to his playing, um, especially on the the later albums that you did with him, like a lot of the tunes have just these kind of solo piano intros, and he's not always playing, you know, super loud, but I just, I just get the sense that like, he is really manhandling the piano. Like even if the, <laughs> even if the, the volume isn't there, like just the muscle, <laughs> yeah. you can feel it and you can hear it. Like, I think he was, he was famous for having like these huge muscular hands. Right. Um, yes. I mean, he, he had great command of the instrument. I mean, he played it beautifully. Yeah, that's the word command. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Complete command of the instrument, and just he could uh, he could utilize that technique to his advantage all the time because he was always thinking about the music. And you know what you said before about um, you know, like with with Ray Brown, you know, about the leader is the is the is the main voice, and then and then the the side men, you know, bass and drums or whatever. Are, are basically the supporters. See, that was never the model in any of Bill's trios. Hmm. You know, never. It was always a three-way street. Yeah, a three-way street. For, that's, that. for, for me, that's what separates his group from most bands out there because it was, it was always about the music. Sure, the piano is the, is the main featured voice, but you never got this sense with Bill that it was about him ever. Ever. Yeah, and I think like you know, I'm thinking back to the the trio with with uh, Scott Lafaro and Paul Motion. Uh, you know, I I feel like that's that's one of the trios that that just sort of invented trio playing as we know it today. Just that three way conversation you're talking about, and there are lots of ways now to to have that conversation. But like that idea of like you said, the three way street. Um, you know, I, I think of, of that trio as maybe the best example of it and, and maybe the earliest example of it. I totally agree with that. And the fact is they just stumbled on that concept. Mm. Yeah. All, all Bill was looking for early on in his career was to find like-minded musicians who were willing to commit to being a part of something and just willing to stay along stay in the band to see what could happen. And that's all it, that's all it was. I mean, they, yeah. the three of them got together. They all, they all had different ideas about how they wanted to approach things. Paul Motion was a, a student of uh, Max Roach, you know. Yeah. I mean, he, he had that language down, and he was trying to find something else, another way to, to not only play his solos, but to play the time. He started to play phrases instead of, Spangalang, Spangalang, all, all night right, long. Right, right. Scott LaFaro had played straight ahead with the best in jazz. I mean, the guy could walk, he could walk you into bad health, man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he he was hearing something else, you know. So yeah. those three, and Bill Evans in his first interview said he wanted to be a solo pianist because he wanted the freedom to be able to move at will to do whatever it was he wanted to do without hanging anybody else up, change key, stay on a chord for a while. You know, these kind of moves that you just can't make in a, in a band w- unless people are aware of what's going to go on. And they found the perfect solution to everybody's desire, right? They all found a way to express themselves with their own individual concepts. They all came together and, and came up with this whole idea of, of a th- three-way dialogue on the yeah. bandstand. Isn't it interesting how, like, no no matter how badly you might want to um, get something different out of yourself, like you, you might have a different direction that you're thinking about or, um, you know, uh, just some, some sort of musical change that you want to make in your own playing, but 
a lot of times you you can't make it until you play with someone else who brings that <clears throat> who brings that out of you. Boom. <laughs> That's what I got to say about that, man. When I around the time I joined Bill Evans, I would had been playing with John Schofield, uh, the Brecker Brothers, all kinds mm -hmm. of like, you know, musicians that were kind of finding a way to uh, to add Coltrane and Post Train to their to their playing. Mm -hmm. And I was playing in those, those with those bands, and my sound was very similar in all of those bands. Bill's trio forced me to find my own sound. You know, Bill's trio forced me to to come up with something that could be my own on the job. That's right. all. I can, and so, what you just said is exactly right. You 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 never know when you're going to be given the opportunity to actually figure it out for yourself. How, how it is you want to play in this world. And even even today with my own quintet, which is tenor and trumpet and piano, bass, and drums, that's that's the model. You know, what Bill did is how I inform my, uh, my own playing today. of uh the perspective um and you know your your memories your recollections and sort of your your processing of your time with bill um how did the process of writing the book uh sort of uh, affect that like what conclusions have you drawn or what new perspectives have you gained as a result of of well i mean were there were there issues were there you know bad memories or traumas that oh, you yeah. had to sort of work through <laughs> oh, oh absolutely man i mean he and i came head to head a couple of times you know mm. but so did he and scott lafaro you know yeah. and it was for the same reason you know bill's substance abuse was was starting to affect the the musical proceedings and scott was mm -hmm. getting pissed off about it and I was getting, I simply just didn't, you know, I was naive enough, even at 32 years old, I was naive enough to think that, that this was something that, you know, if you just man up and decide mm -hmm. you're going to, yeah, totally off the mark, man, you know, but yeah, there were some, there were some, there were some moments of, of, uh, displeasure. And of course the, the final day obviously was the horrible day, probably the worst day of my life. Mm -hmm. But um, overall, it's a completely positive experience. And when I look at Bill's life, I have to say it's a completely positive experience because he lived his life exactly the way he wanted to live it. It was mm -hmm. not about, you know, meeting somebody else's expectations. You know, the, the rest of the world, of course, thinks it was a life cut short. And, I, and, and I, I would hold that same view. It was a life cut short. But in Bill's view... And he even says as much in the last recorded interview that uh, that's out there. He exactly fulfilled everything that he set out to do. I mean, hmm. how many people can say that at yeah. at fifty years old? You know, right? <laughs> he was fifty when he died. Yeah. Wow, man. I think the the popular narrative about Bill overall, and it, like I'm sure it's an oversimplification, but. I, I think the the narrative out there is that he never recovered really from the tragedy of of Scott Lafaro's death. Um, do you do you agree with that? Is is there more to it? What what's your perspective on that? I, that was a, a major blow. 
yeah. you know. I mean, in the same way that Richie Powell and Clifford Brown's death was a huge psychological blow to Max Roach. Yeah. But Max got past it. And mm -hmm. I think Bill got past it as well because the music had to continue, right? Mm -hmm. It took him a long time. Um, certainly that was a, that was a, a, a blow to Bill. Uh, when his first wife committed suicide, that was a huge blow. And then, of mm. course, when his brother Harry committed suicide, that was kind of the final blow. But I wasn't aware of these, man. Oh, wow. That's... These are the kinds of things that, um, that I wanted to, to make people aware of, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted them to under... It helps you to have an understanding of what, what put, why Bill took the path that he took. Right, right. Um, so in terms of, of moving on and getting past it, how did, how did you do that after Bill's death? What were oh, the, man. <laughs> either, you know, in the short term or the, or the long term after his death? Well, in the short term, it was my family that kept me together. Yeah. I had a mm -hmm. brand new baby daughter, you know, and my wife was very supportive at the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we had to get past that. And fortunately, uh, let's see, Bill passed in September. And in uh, December, uh, Tony Bennett's office had reached out and offered me his job. Hmm. And even though it wasn't a jazz gig, it was, uh, it was steady employment, which I seriously needed at that particular moment in my life. So uh, that helped me to, to keep it together. But in terms of getting past... Um, getting past uh, Bill's death, that took me years, years to process. In fact, starting from 1981, which was January of 81, I mean, up until the time I uh, uh, wrote the book with Charles, I was still processing that in some hmm. way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, like you had been sort of writing things down along the way like when when you decide to write this book what are your resources other than <laughs> your own memories well um as you will discover um in the in my memories which i'm i'm glad i wrote down absolutely coincide with the memories of all the witnesses who are in the book so for example when I speak about um, the last gig we played at Fat Tuesday, you know, that's, that was just a few days before Bill actually died, but it was the last time he played the piano. Hmm. Um, both Richie Byrack and Adam Nussbaum were in the audience, and both of them are witnesses in the book. Mm -hmm. Gary Novak talks about seeing the trio early on as an 11-year-old boy in Chicago. His dad was was in the army, uh, Larry Novak was in the army with Bill, and so he brought Le Gary to hear the trio. Gary's recollection of what the trio was getting into coincides with my own memories of, you know, mm -hmm. so each step along the way, we were able to find people that could uh, more or less validate what my, what my memories were. Yeah, yeah. What kind of writing had you done before this? Basically, jazz history exams. <laughs> no, so, I'd, like, <laughs> I'd never done any serious writing. Wow. Um, what, so, what was the what was the process like? How did you decide how to break down, you know, or or organize the narrative of the book? Well, that's when I think Charles Levin comes in in, in as very important way because he helped me to organize this book mm -hmm. and it was charles insistence that we um that we include the first couple of chapters that that lay out my life and my family's life because i come from a musical family it's important for people that that don't know me from adam to understand you know my background so that they, they you know, it, it, they can understand the book better. Mm -hmm. So that's important. And along the way, which is interesting, by outlining my, my childhood and my army time and all of that, it lines up with bills, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, without, <clears throat> 
without sort of spoiling anything in the book, um, for those people listening, like what what is kind of the the one thing about Bill that you want people to take away from from your experience and from your uh, telling of this story? Ooh, that's a tough one, man. Gee, uh, the one thing. Well, or two, or three. No, no. Actually, <laughs> there is one thing, and it's a, it's a common thread throughout the entire book: commitment. Hmm. Commitment to what it is you say you're going to do in life, right? Yeah. So, Bill, he went to he liked jazz as a kid, of course. Who you know, he, he got the bug, <laughs> like all of us get it, right? Or a lot right. of us get it. He went to college, got a got a um, a degree that would allow him to teach, just like his brother Harry. But upon graduation, he realized that that wasn't what he wanted to do. That what he wanted to do was play, and that's the commitment he made. Now that might sound like a not a big deal, but it is a big deal because yeah, you know, he said, "I'm doing this, come hell or high water." And mm-hmm. you know, there was he went on the road, then he was. He went into the army for three years, which kind of took him off the scene. But then he came back and he committed to going to New York and he gave himself five years. He said, I'm going to, no matter what, I'm going to commit five years to, to see if I can make a dent in New York city. And if I can't, then maybe I'm, I've got some, some options. You know, of course he's got some options. He's, he could go into the studios. He could become a teacher. He could become a musical director. Right. And along the way, there were, you know, there were temptations. So, for example, uh, 55, 56, maybe, uh, 1956 in New York, he's given a, a, an opportunity to, to join this singer named Tony Martin. Now, you won't recognize that name, but Tony Martin was kind of like a, he was I like, know that name. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of a crooner guy, right? A crooner guy who was very popular, and the offer was... <clears throat> $25,000 a year for a 17-week commitment. 1956, Zach. So this is, wow. we're talking some serious money. And Bill said it took him 10 seconds to tell him no, because he wow. realized if he made if he did that, it was going to deter him from his path. So he was committed there. Then there's the commitment to, uh, to the trios, right? He wanted, he was committed to, to playing quality music. He was committed to making sure that if he signed with a record company, that that record company was going to continue to keep his records available, right? Mm -hmm. Its commitment is all the way through his life. There's a Hmm. solid commitment. Yeah. Um, That's, we we talk about similar um, ideas on the podcast all the time, you know, just about sort of, having um having a vision for your career um and a lot of times like it's it's two sides of the same coin because you you kind of have to develop a clear idea of who you are and what you want to do and what you want your career to look like what kind of music you want to play but almost invariably your career doesn't end up looking like you think it will (laughs) (laughs) you know so you kind of you have to be steadfast in your like you said your commitment to doing what you want to do but um at the same time being open enough to entertain different types of opportunities being open to different types of music or different types of musicians and and also just the the non-musical um twists and turns that life takes you know because another common theme on the podcast here is that real life just intervenes on music all the time and and sends you in a different direction or to a different city or, uh, you know, or like you well know, tragedy, tragedy can strike and just derail your, uh, your musical career. That is true, man. And I, all I can say is that my whole life, starting from as a teenager, I had a, I had a vision of the kind of music I wanted to play, mm-hmm. you know, and the level of musicians that I wanted to be associated with. And I've taken some turns here and there, you know, but for the most part, it's it's played out the way I wanted it to, 
to be. And I don't think that has anything to do with like fate or anything like that. I think it's when you've got something like that in your mind, on your mind, you're, you're going to be actively working to achieve that goal. You, yeah. uh, of course there's going to, it, there's, there may be setbacks, there may be diversions, but as long as you stay, if you, as long as you stay the course, I think ultimately it's going to pay off. I mean, I'm I'm going to be 75 years old in a couple in a week or so, and Man, I can I can honestly thanks. I can honestly say that uh, the last the last 20 years of my life have been without a doubt the most rewarding musically for me. Wow, wow, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like um, in terms of you know having success in a music career however you define success um i think half the battle is just hanging around <laughs> you know like if it's really what you want to do just keep doing it and you know things things will happen um i agree with that and i i told my students for for 28 years at cal arts i told them you know you have to be willing if you're really committed to playing quality music then you have to be willing to accept the reward of the music sometimes if you're if you're looking for financial gain if you're looking for celebrity you know you're on you're in the wrong business man you know you really need to you need to understand what it is you're after and if you want to play music the way you want to play it then that's that should be reward enough yeah, I love that. It's like some sometimes the the music has to be its own reward, um, and and keep you going. It reminds me of um, I, I listen to Mark Maron a lot. He has a, a podcast, and he was interviewing um, I don't. It might have been Rich Little or some some kind of more old school comedian um, who had just been in the game for decades and you know never never become a real household name, but always up there, always doing it. And the guy said. Uh, uh, but like he's he's respected in the in the comedy community. He's like you know one of the OGs, and and he said you know there's there's really nothing better than the the respect and admiration of your peers. And Mark Maron said, well, sure, it might be all you get. <laughs> well, that's true though, you know. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I mean, Rich Little was as funny as anybody out there, and as talented as anybody out there. So yeah, that's yeah. not a bad example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love that idea of, um, you know, we all want to make a living. We all want to, uh, get a certain amount of accolades, especially in the drum world, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, um, the, the reward of just a, a musical experience, whether it's on stage or in the studio or, you know, uh, having, having that experience with musicians who you admire, who, who make you better, um, you know that's 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 why we're in this i think i think so too mentioned uh tony bennett um and you know speaking of sort of uh, twists and turns <laughs> in your career like that was the next major chapter in in your career after bill um and quite a departure musically i mean you, you when you mentioned tony bennett you you said you know that wasn't a jazz gig um and i was kind of surprised to hear you say that because i think you know 99 out of 100 people would would recognize would call tony bennett a jazz singer um but I think like what you meant is, you know, not <laughs> it wasn't a jazz gig in the same way the Bill Evans trio was a jazz gig. Yeah. Well, even Tony wouldn't consider himself a jazz singer. Really? No, no, not at all. He, he would just consider himself, uh, you know, a an interpreter of popular song. Hmm. He certainly loved jazz and he worked with jazz musicians. But Tony's Tony's show was a show. You know? Yeah. And so it was completely different in terms of how you were allowed to participate or how you could participate, you know? 
Right. It's not a, it's not about me playing some hip thing back there, you know. It's, that's out of the question, right? It's about mm. providing a background so somebody else can do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. And so talk about the fulfillment aspect. Like how how was how how did playing with Tony Bennett fulfill you musically, artistically, whatever versus the fulfillment you got from playing with Bill or the fulfillment you get today from playing with your own group? Hmm. Well, it's it's completely different, right? Yeah. I yeah. could take pleasure and and enjoyment from hearing Tony perform at his best. Mhm. So if my my small part was helping him to achieve that, that's all I needed. That's all the reward I needed. Um, but in, in terms of my own personal growth, I always in the back of my mind had it stored there that this was just a step along the way. This was not going to be the final chapter. Right. But I have great respect for Tony as a, as a, uh, as a person and as a, uh, as a singer. And he's still one of my favorite singers. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, I love that you sort of pointed to uh, just the, the singular talent of the guy you were playing behind um, because I, you know, I've had similar experiences uh, and I'm, I'm having a similar experience now on, on this show mm -hmm. um, uh, where, you know, the, the song, the song you're playing might be, just downright boring from the drum perspective, right? <laughs> like there's nothing challenging about it. There's, there's nothing interesting about the drum part. It's just, it's pure support. Um, but, uh, if you're playing an amazing song with an amazing singer, like that's, that's your reward, right? You yeah. get to, <laughs> you get to just be part of that. I'm yeah. thinking of, um, there, uh, in, in part of this show, one of the songs in this show is, uh, just my imagination, um, oh, yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, what a song that is. And the guy that sings it in the show, this this actor, Jalen Harris, is just a unicorn of a performer. Um, so this song comes up and the, you know, the, the drum part is like a, a fifth grader could play it. It's totally boring. But I just like I'd listen to Jalen sing this song and it's like, man, life is pretty fucking good right now. <laughs> You know what, Zach? I don't think a fifth grader could play it. And I think you're you're selling yourself short because <laughs> no, really. To do something like that accurately and competently, more than competently, to do that job, mm -hmm. it takes more than a fifth grader's ability. It takes a, a mature player's ability and the ability to keep in check all the other stuff you could possibly play and be willing to just lay down that thing that right. that song needs, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are ways in which like keeping it in check, um, is often difficult for me. And I think for a lot of drummers, but on a, on a song like that, um, I don't find it difficult at all because, I, I don't have to do anything like any idea that I would have to keep in check is immediately dismissed. Cause it's like, no, that will just ruin this song. <laughs> exactly. You see, that's that editing process that comes with maturity, man. You start to realize now that ain't going to work, man. Why would I, why would I play that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. If you've got an amazing song and an amazing singer, just stay out of their way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Enjoy it. Yep. Um, you also mentioned Cal Arts, so I, I I didn't realize until I was preparing for this interview that you no longer teach at Cal Arts. You you retired from teaching. I retired. Uh, I think it was two years ago. Yeah, twenty twenty one. So yeah, yeah, you were there for twenty eight years, mm -hmm. and man, what a program! Um, when when I lived in L A, I uh, I encountered a lot of people from Cal Arts. I interviewed a couple, um, and that was. I thought of that as like one of the two, you know, major music programs in the area. The other one being USC, um, and uh, Cal Arts. Like I never, I never quite got my brain around it, and never got a feel for what goes on there because it seemed like it was just all over the road. Like you had students ranging from Tina Raymond, who is just as dyed in the wool, straight ahead bop as it gets 
to Gene Coy, who I still don't know how the fuck that guy happened, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, don't forget so, Nate, Nate Wood. Yeah, yeah, man, geez. Um, yeah, uh, there's just a long list of, of amazing players that, that you kind of mentored over the years. But um, can you talk a little bit about, about that program and the different types of players that it attracted and how you – covered all those bases <laughs> well first of all each one of those students that you mentioned tina gene nate they all had their own idea of how they wanted to to play mm -hmm. right my job is never to kind of give somebody a style to model themselves after it's just to give them more information to help hopefully improve their drum set skills then with that, armed with that information, then that person can go on and figure out what they want to do with it. I think that's pretty much the crux of, of what a teacher should be, do. You know, I want yeah. to make sure that they have solid fundamentals, but that, that in no way are, is anyone dictating a style to them to tell them that this is good and this is bad. I mean, I had students come in, you know, that want, were interested in things that I had, I didn't have a clue about. And what I was always willing to do, Zach, was to go to them and to get interested in what they want to do and do what they, you know, try to get into what they're into. And then along the way, then they're more willing to accept some of my legacy, some of what I have to offer, which mm -hmm. helps to round out their thing. You know, yeah. Ideally, that's, that's the approach I always took. Yeah. Are there um, some artists or some types of music that uh, students turned you on to that like that you had to get hip to to teach a certain student that you still like keep with you and enjoy today? All kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, uh, you know, just the whole idea of playing in different meters. I mean, that was like that goes back to I'm trying to remember. It was a bass player in my ensemble, but like early on you know and mm -hmm. this guy wanted to play and and for me you know i mean like five four was a stretch you know so <laughs> that's one example you know um yeah. uh like ben wendell's uh music you know one of my uh, one of my students wanted to play one of ben's tunes and i happened to know ben so i reached out to him and he sent me the the whole score for this tune and we started playing it in his in his uh in my ensemble what the hell is it called It'll come to me. It was a it was a brain twister, man. I mean, yeah. you know, so those kinds of things. I I had a student who was Middle Eastern, and all this all this guy wanted to do was play anything but four four. And so we would work. You know, we would get into his things. You know, I had one. Uh, I had a, a a student, a graduate student who played tabla and wanted to learn bebop. You know. <laughs> So, I mean, Man. I was willing to try just about anything as long as a student was serious about it. Yeah. Then yeah. I was there for them. And it seemed like CalArts um, is a place where, I mean, first of all, it's not just a music school, right? It's it's just an arts, arts institute in general. Um, and it seems like a place where people go to develop and explore just pure creativity um, without much concern for um, marketability or <laughs> popularity or ac accessibility, um, is that is that fair? I would say art for art's sake should be uh, over the over the doorway. You have to remember the genesis of that school was Walt Disney creating an environment for animators. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's how it all got started. He you know he just had all his buddies get together and they figured out that, you know, we need a place where we can incubate and come up with these different ideas. Yeah. And it, it grew from there. So yes, I would say that is absolutely uh, the model for that place because every, every faculty member, no matter which school, whether it's dance or theater or, you know, photography, everybody is an active pro in their field. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted people that actually do it, to be teaching it right right and it's you know it's it's not that a place like usc doesn't explore creativity because no. obviously they do but i think that that program is um 
a bit more career minded, right? I, I, you know, all I can say is that because CalArts was, is a private institution, you have a lot more flexibility. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to adhere to accreditation mandates. That's par for the course. Mm -hmm. But you have a lot, a lot more flexibility in terms of how you structure your programs. And in terms of how I created my curriculum for my drumming students, with my jazz history course, for any other, any other courses that I taught, uh, that was up to me entirely. Yeah, yeah. So in this environment um, where, like you said, it's, it's art for art's sake, it's, it's an incubator for creativity, um, as an educator – and as a mentor to all these different types of students, um, did you ever feel the need to, or did, did any of them ask you for career advice or for, you know, sort of professional path type stuff? Or did, was, did you view that as like not in your purview? We're here to explore creativity. We're not talking about business. Oh, no, absolutely. That's part of it. As a mentor, you owe it to your student to give them as much information as you can about the realities of this business. Mm -hmm. you know? And I would have to have that conversation with parents as well, because let's face it, <laughs> they're plunk, they're plunking down a lot of cash to send yeah. their, their, their children to that school, to any school. And so when, when the discussion becomes, you know, what's the reality after graduation all I can tell them is that it's it's an it's a uh, an insecure future at best, you know. <laughs> but the fact is, if you're dedicated to it and you commit to it, you can be successful. I'm I'm proof of that, as are countless others. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, you simply have to be realistic in in your expectations, you know. Bill Evans was realistic in his expectations when he went to New York. He had $150 in his pocket, but he knew he could work because he was confident of his abilities. Mm -hmm. You know, if if someone is thinking that they're going to graduate with a uh, a master's degree in the jazz studies program, and there's some kind of a linear path into employment. The same way there might be if you if you go to law school or medical med school, then that's an unrealistic expectation, right? You're right. in you're you're in the arts, so you really need to pre be prepared for what what that's going to be like upon graduation. Yeah. This business, I don't think it's changed since I got into it. You know, back in in the uh, the late '60s and early '70s when I was first starting to head out, there were no guarantees. About right. anything, you know, there might have been more options because there were quite a few big bands out there. I got, I, I was fortunate to join Woody Herman's band. Peter was on Kenton's band and then Maynard's mm -hmm. band. You know, there were all kinds of big bands out there that were eagerly hiring college graduates because they were cheaper. Plain and simple, yeah. right? Right. Certainly could play their instruments, but prior to that, you know, in, in the 50s and up through the 60s, those jobs were being filled by seasoned pros who right. were willing to go out on the road. So there was that. But in terms of actually making inroads into the field of jazz, since that is the only, the only field I can speak to with any authority, it was simply a matter of doing your best and hopefully getting noticed in a positive way. You know, hopefully, you know, someone hears you. And from that point on, uh, things will start to happen. That's what happened to me, and that's also in the book. Not to not to circle back over there, but I'm just since we yeah. were discussing this, I moved to New York. I had already been with Woody's band and Chuck Mangione for uh, for four years. So Woody for a year and Chuck for four years. So people knew who I was. But what made what got me started in New York was a week at. Uh, Sweet Basil with Jim Hall and Michael Moore that Bill Goodwin gave me as a sub because Bill had double booked. He had uh, uh, Jim Hall's gig and he had uh, uh, 
American Jazz Ensemble, I think it was called. Chuck, Chuck, National Jazz Ensemble, Chuck Israel's thing. Huh. So he needed a sub for a week. So I subbed for Bill for a week, and everybody in town was coming down to hear Jim Hall. And as a consequence, they heard me, and I started to get a lot of gigs because of that. Right, right. And I, I mean, it's it, it's kind of the, the cliche of, of uh, it's, what is it, half luck and half preparation? Success is... Yeah. I'm mixing it up now. But basically, you know, when when you're given the opportunity, be ready, be open, um, and uh, and stuff will happen. So that's that's a realistic perspective, right? It's one thing to get an opportunity, but uh, it's another thing to be prepared for it. So it's up to you yeah. to be prepared for that opportunity. That's the that's the sentence I was looking for. <laughs> Stick with me, Zach. <laughs> did you move to LA? Uh, I moved to Los Angeles because um, in my first marriage, uh, my wife wanted to relocate to uh, Phoenix to be with her, her aging parents, which I totally understood. Mm -hmm. uh, but at, there were other issues going on in our life. So long story short, our marriage dissolved in uh, while we had made the move to Phoenix, and uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to get back into music the way I wanted to get back into it, but I didn't want to be that far away from my daughter. Mm -hmm. So rather than go back to New York, I came out to Los Angeles, and it actually worked out ideally because I was able to drive from L.A. back to Phoenix and pick up Tiffany and bring her back to LA and, and, and she would spend summers with me on the road, wherever I was, you know, so it worked out right. really well. Uh, right. But that's the, that's the main reason. I always liked Los Angeles. I had been coming here since the early seventies with Chuck Mangione. I always knew there were great players out here. I never had any uh, prejudice against West coast versus East coast. I always knew there were great players out here. Yeah. So it just, it was a matter of me coming out here and getting some traction but I had right. to start start all over again, you know. Right, and so I want to ask you about that, but but just briefly, like what you just described is a great example of like real life intruding on your music career, right? Like you're going along in New York, um, but then like real life shit dictates, no, we have to go there now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and and you went with it, and not only you know made made the best of it, made the most of it, but it sounds like you know, LA, LA became where you belong and where you call home. And that is true. I mean, I met my wife here and I, we have been happily together for 30 years. Yeah. That's the, that's the big plus for me. And then everything else, all the benefits that have come because of that have been uh, more than I had ever hoped for. But, uh, I'm so to... glad you mentioned that because, like, I, I'm talking about how you know the the negative ways in which real life intrudes on your music career, but then like all all the positive aspects of real life end up being more important than your music career. Right? Oh, that's for me. I mean, the upbringing that I had, it's all about family. Yeah, so I've always put my family first. Always. Yeah, yeah. But you know, in terms of the reality of me, you know, with a with an established reputation, moving to Los Angeles, yeah, and then and then having to get in the back of the queue. First of all, people thought I was crazy moving out here, thinking I was going to play jazz, because mm -hmm. I really never wanted to get into studio work ever, you know, and mm -hmm. I have never have gotten into studio work. It's always been it's I've always been focused on playing jazz. 
But I, I just, I'm, I'm single-minded about that. I, ha- I saw no reason why I couldn't come out here and make some kind of a living, you know? Right. Play, playing right. music I wanted to play, and it, it worked out. Well, it's interesting. I had um, a similar experience when I moved to L.A., and, and I'm, you know, with, with every year that passes, I'm, I'm realizing with greater clarity just, like, how naive I was. Um, but, you know, I, I moved to L.A. when I was 30, and uh, I had spent the previous seven years in Kansas City um, just playing jazz, going to grad school, um, and you know, I, I had developed what I thought was like a, a pretty respectable resume playing in Kansas city. I was one of the go-to guys and, you know, I, I showed up in LA under the mistaken impression that anybody in LA was going to give a shit what I had done <laughs> prior to getting there. Um, and you know, and I didn't, I didn't have one tenth the resume that you had built up by that point, like not even, not even close. Um, so during the like when you when you talk about having to go to the back of the queue um what what was your mindset like did you have a crisis of confidence did you uh did you get bitter about it did you i mean how how did you sort of um work your way into LA uh with the the resume that you were bringing like you had this amazing New York resume and it sounds like you had a similar experience to me where it's like LA doesn't give a shit. You got to start over. <laughs> I don't, you know, if you're Steve Gadd or Vinnie Cayuta, you know, you could probably move out here and expect, you know, things to happen immediately. Right. Yeah. But for, for working drummers, you know, it's like, it, it also, de- it also depends on what you have to offer. Right. Mm-hmm. And what you're willing to do. So, <clears throat> um, what I wanted to do was to play, play, get back into the music that I had been missing the whole time I was, you know, playing with Tony. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that respectfully. You know, you have to understand yeah, yeah. everything that we said before. It's not about, about him. It's about the job, right? Um, so I'm sure there were days when I thought, oh, geez, man, you know, I'm... I'm 40, what, I, what was I, 42 when I moved out? I can't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I, but I'm going to do it, and I'm just going to stick with it because that's what else, what other options do I have, you know? And also in the back of my mind was I, I would love for, uh, you know, for to spend more time with my daughter and not have to drive back and forth. So yeah. as, as luck would have it, in 1993, I moved here in 87, in 1993, um, the job at CalArts opened up, and they approached me to take it, and that was going to allow me to not have to travel so much. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you mentioned um, the the week long gig you had at, at Sweet Basil in New York, and mm-hmm. you know that was kind of the week that that got you going. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a, was there a similar thing in LA that you can point to, or was it more of a little by little, just sort of? Little by little, I think, you know, I had the same experience in New York pretty much that I had out here. When I got to New York, I started working with the older established musicians. So mm-hmm. Jim Hall, and, you know, Art Farmer, uh, Phil Woods, you know, the, the older guard, Toots Thielman. When I came out to L.A., I started working with uh, Connie Condoli and, and Pete, not Pete Jolly, but uh, 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 Lou Levy. Uh, Bud Shank, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the older guards. So, and I started to work with them and record with them. Mm-hmm. So that was the road that I took. And then gradually, you know, I was able to work with, with younger players as well, you know, out here. But uh, uh, it was just kind of a step-by-step process of building, building enough of a reputation here and people got to understand what it was that I could do. Right. And, and then just one day at a time, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, do, like, do you have, do you have goals now post, post retirement, post teaching? Are there, I mean, other than writing the book, obviously, are there things that you have time to pursue now that, uh, your teaching career didn't really allow? I'm so glad you asked that, man. Cause I wore this shirt specifically for that. Here's my plan. <laughs> my plan for the day. <laughs> They're at first coffee, then drums, then wine. <laughs> yep. 
so, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> no, I, I do have goals, but you know, I've got a new recording that's just come out. Oh, great. So that's, that's in the works. Um, mm -hmm. the, there were in negotiations to publish, uh, times remembered in a, in a, in a foreign language. I can't speak to that just at the moment, but that's, that's in the works. Good. Uh, I'm going back to Japan. I'm going back to Italy this year. I stopped touring in 2018, so I haven't been out of, out of the country to work since then. So I'm going back this year for the going first with time. your group. Uh, no, in uh, in Japan, I'm going over with uh, an alto player from from Rome named um, Rosario Giuliani, hmm. and a young vocalist from Toronto whose name is damn it, escaping me at the moment, but there it is. And then the, the Italy thing is with uh, Dado Moroni and Eddie Gomez. That's a trio that we put together a long time ago that, cool. that has recorded. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, an Evans-esque approach to playing, mm -hmm. but it, it's not, we're not playing Bill's music per se, but uh, yeah. So that's always a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. And well, I'm going good. to New I'm going to New York. Oh, Oops. nice. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So anyway, that's as much as, as no, what's, what's going on in New York. Uh, I'm going to be recording with uh, my brother, John, his, oh, big, great. his big band. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, man, good luck with, with all of it. Um, congratulations on a, a really exemplary teaching career. Uh, the, you know, the, the impact that you had at, at Cal arts, um, is is gonna resonate for a lot of years to come with all the students you had um and congratulations on this book thank you very much zach and best of luck on the tour out there thanks man i appreciate it great talking with you you too there you go joe labarbara that's a life well lived right there musically and otherwise and still going strong thanks again to him for that talk hope you dug that Joe's book, Times Remembered, is available wherever you get books, and he's easy to find on recordings. He has hundreds to his credit, both as a leader and a sideman. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Bobby Sanabria, Grammy-nominated Afro-Cuban drummer and band leader based in New York. Hope you check that out, and until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.